Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Brantley Tusk, as usual for a Tuesday episode. With us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. So we're going to do a bunch of things today, but mm-hmm. we're going to start with just three questions sort of right off the news. I'm going to ask you, you can you can give, you don't have to give essay answers, although you can if you want. Um, I like to speak in paragraphs. Okay. <laughs> you, you do, you, you're a good, you're good talker in paragraphs. Um, what is your theory about why prosecutors have not laid a glove on Donald Trump despite years of trying? I mean, there's there's only two possibilities. If you want to go into the, you know, angry at Trump and furious at all times and kind of the super left MSNBC thing, then you could say it's corruption or a conspiracy or maybe they're afraid that they'll be killed by Trump supporters <laughs> or some shit like that. The reality is they don't fucking have a case. I wish they did. I would love for Trump to be put in jail today. Honestly, I'll say this out loud of the podcast. I would love for him to drop dead today. Um, but with that said, in this country, you don't prosecute someone unless you have the evidence to do so, and they don't have it. Like, there's nothing that could possibly be better for the Tish James or Alvin Bragg or the, the DA in Atlanta or all these places that are Democratic strongholds that would define their career to prosecute Donald Trump. And the reason they're not doing it is they don't have a case, obviously. So, okay, r- related question. Is Trump a master criminal or not a criminal? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I, I guess master in the sense of he's the ability for him to constantly inflate and deflate his assets, borrow money he shouldn't be entitled to, declare bankruptcy, get funding, all of that, um, clearly is not within the spirit of how the system is supposed to work. Right. However, if he were a master criminal, then presumably there would be more evidence of that, in which case there would be more likely to be a trial against him. So, look, I think he is just a guy who has played the system extremely well. And what he shows is if you have no ethics and no morals and no conscience whatsoever, you can accomplish a lot. Now, he's going to burn <laughs> in hell, hopefully, but he still can accomplish a lot. Um, if Elon Musk came to you and said, OK, Bradley, I just bought this huge chunk of Twitter. What the hell should I do with it? What would you tell him? So e- Elon and I think approach the world in different ways, right? Oh, really? Yeah. Or I, thought, I think of you as Elon kind of as peas in a pod. Really? No. Um, he threatened to sue me when the fixer came out. Oh, really? Keith, there was a chapter about Tesla. And I actually thought I was being fairly nice to them. Uh-huh. But apparently they got upset. And uh, his chief of staff called me and said, hey, the guy was kind of friendly with the guy. And he said, counsel wants to sue you. And I said, look, my lawyers went through this. And my lawyers are really fucking good. Um, Random House's lawyers went through Wait, what, this. What did, he, what did he want to sue you over? Breach of confidentiality. Oh, because you'd met with him about something. Because I we ran a campaign for them, and I talked about it in the book. Oh, I see. I and see. Okay. I, I forgot that aspect I said, of look, book. so you want to go to court, that's fine. We'll win. But please sue me, because I will sell so many more books if you do. Yeah, it, my God. It would God. be a huge favor to me if you did. Oh, that would have been like a Bradley-type campaign amazing. where you where you gin up a, yeah. like a, so a he, suit. Uh, the, I think when they realized that, they just... It, it, that was the last. It's reminding me of the advice you gave me about the movie Detroit. You're like, att- you're like attract all the negative attention you get, and do whatever it takes to get Bradley or to get Bradley to get Donald Trump to like, you know, condemn uh, you. To yeah. Condemn you. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, look, my advice to Elon would be probably what everyone listening to this would be, which is make Twitter a less toxic, less horrible place. Use your power to impose new standards, to impose much more content moderation, to take away the ability for people to spread hatred throughout Twitter. Um, and and m- given the negative impact Twitter has on society, you, Elon Musk, are in a position to mitigate that. And look, you spent, what, he spent $3 billion on the shares? He's worth $300 billion. So let's 
$3 billion, that would be one of the best charitable donations anyone could ever make if they could mitigate the harm of Twitter. What will he do? The exact opposite, right? Because one, I don't think, I think he's a lot like Trump. I don't think he thinks about anything but his own needs and ego at every given moment, nothing else. I don't think he cares about anything else. So he don't, will don't actually- tell him, Don't tell him that, though. He will <laughs> actually make Twitter worse. Okay. Um, Even worse, if possible. All right, money is pouring into Wyoming. Um, uh, Liz Cheney's reelection campaign um, is attracting uh, huge donations from. Uh, well, she's getting a lot of support from from Romney, from George W. Bush, from Mitch McConnell. Um, the challengers is, is uh, raising a ton of money from uh, from the sort of Trump nation. Um, did you donate to uh, no, Liz Cheney's campaign? No, no. And it's no. it's. By the way, I, I so did you consider it? No. So I would say if you looked, if you did the research, uh, you'd probably find that about ninety percent of my political giving is to Democrats, even though I'm an independent and, and really dislike both parties. Um, so while I typically, ha- you know, what? I gave more to Republicans pre-Trump. It's been basically impossible for me to do so, which I know you would then say, well, she's opposing Trump, so you should give to Not her. Not only that, but isn't this kind of a, a litmus test or a sort but of? But I only place to keep in mind, the- no, because I only give. If it's someone that I think will further the things that I care about. So right. I've given out lots of money in the past six months to U.S. senators and some members of the House, too, to try to get our school meals proposal into the spending bill, right? Pro- you know, well into the six figures. Um, but it's because I believe that Kirsten Cinema or Debbie Stabenow or Pete Aguilar, whoever it is, could help me do it after meeting with them about it and right. deciding that it was worth the, the gamble, right? I don't give money because I'm like, oh, I want Democrats to be in power. I, I, I want both parties to burn and crash and die. I hate them both. <laughs> um, do you think it matters if, uh, if, if Liz Cheney wins re-election for, the, for Trump's momentum or anything? No. No, because no, you're applying a logical political calculation, <laughs> which is, oh, if he loses this election, then it shows he has less power, which will slow his momentum, which will make it harder for him to win endorsements and raise money and win the next election. No <laughs> laws of gravity apply to this guy. It doesn't matter. Okay. All right. I think I, good job on those three questions, Bradley. <laughs> he um, was contractually obligated to compliment at least three times a day. <laughs> um, okay. So we're going to do... Uh, I'll just have you explain it. I'm yeah. not even going to give you any intro. So, so here, here's what it is. So I, I kind of realized that if, if you take the totality of the content that we produce, right? So it's, it's these two podcasts a week. It's my columns. It's The Fixer and then the novel I'm working on now. Other book proposals that you and I have worked on. Uh, my class at Columbia. Speeches I give. And then me going on other people's TV shows, podcasts, whatever else. You know, there's sort of a budding political philosophy that I'm just noticing myself saying over and over and over again in all of these places. And I think I keep doing it in part because it's what I believe and in part because I think it's important that people see politics this way because if they don't, the way the way we currently see it obviously doesn't work because our system is completely broken. And I think if we better understood what it really is and why it really is, we have a much better chance of fixing it. And so based on that, I kind of wrote up over the weekend, like, what are the kind of basic tenets of my political philosophy here? Um, And this is not about ideology. This is not about guns or abortion or immigration. It's purely 
how do politics really work and why and what do you do about it? Um, and so I wrote these things up and sent them to you. And how do you want to go through this? I think you just need to read them and then and then we'll we'll double back. I think it's probably better if you just go through the list. Go slowly though. Do all ten and then do then we'll all talk ten about it. and then and then we'll we'll talk about the we'll, we'll sort of go back to the to the beginning. But but I think it's okay. good to read all ten. So, all right. Go so, ahead. so number one is something I think people in this listeners to this podcast have heard me say quite a bit, which is every policy output is the result of a political input. Number two is, obviously linked to it, every politician values staying in office far more than anything else. Number three, politicians are extremely rational and smart when it comes to determining what's in their best political interest. Number four, expecting politicians to do the right thing and defy human human nature never works. Number five, politicians will do what you want in one of two cases. They think that you can help them win their next election or they think that you can help cost them their next election. Otherwise, you don't matter at all. Number six, because of gerrymandering, the only election that typically matters is the primary. And because primary turnout is typically 10 to 20%, a very small group of voters and special interests choose our elected officials and the policies they pursue. Number seven, politicians, because all they want to do is stay in office, will adapt to whatever policies the majority of their primary voters support. So if primary turnout expands considerably, the politician will shift to the center to accommodate it. Number eight, if we want different outputs, if we want different policies, we have to change the inputs. The only thing that works is changing the political incentives. Everything else is just noise. Number nine, while mobile voting is our structural solution to the problem, on a day-to-day basis, as we run campaigns for our portfolio companies, our clients, and our causes, the key to any campaign is to understand whose support you really need and what will make them feel like you can impact their next primary. This applies to every state, every party, and every ideology. And finally, number 10, in other words, politics is far less complex than people in the business, elected officials, staffers, reporters, pundits, academics, think tanks, make it out to be. The more complex it sounds, the more impressive they seem, but it's just about inputs and outputs and nothing else. Okay. Well said. Now we should probably get this published somewhere. Um, yeah, just we so go, people can, can we put it on the firewall site or something. Like that? Yeah, I think we'll we should put do it on that. firewall. And, and I, I think um, it's funny. It, it has the feel of, of of a very finished and polished product, um, but you really just sort of spun this out. I, I wrote it up <laughs> yesterday, but um, I but mean, obviously it's it's years and years. Yeah, in the but making, it's but been and I think especially um, teaching kind of really hones it in because because. Uh-huh. When I start my semester, I, I basically give a version of this. So I hadn't written this specifically up right. yet. And I say, if, if you learn nothing else, if you take this away from the class, it will be a good use of your time. And if you learn everything else I teach you, but you don't internalize this, there's a waste of time. Now, which now these obviously sort of build on each other. Yeah. They're 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 all kind of interrelated. But if you could pinpoint one of them. Which was the one that took you the longest to kind of figure out or learn through the course of your career? Like when you were starting out, like way back in the days of of, uh, working for Ed Rendell in Philadelphia, or what were the aspects of this that you did? When I was young and naive, I probably when I was young and naive, I probably didn't understand any of these. Right? What I would say is, which of these took longer over the call it twenty years that I worked, fifteen years that I worked directly in government and politics? Uh Um, Let's see. You know, every policy result being the result of political input. Right, that's the base of everything. That's the base of everything. Um, you know, I, I started realizing that when I worked for, for Schumer um, because I watched him operate and, and saw what drove him, which was just politics, fundraising, attention, money, you know, nothing to do with, with substance Also, senators have more time to just do whatever the fuck they want, right? Like, yeah, if, if, you're running, if you're running the city of Philadelphia or the city of New York, 
you just have stuff yeah, flying I mean, at being, you all the time. Being a look, Schumer to his credit works around the clock. He's one maybe one of the hardest workers I've ever met. However, you could also basically be a U.S. senator and be on vacation for six years, right? And you do <laughs> you show up to vote sometimes. You do a couple of events. You spend some time in the district. Probably Did you like the, it when Rand Paul, you know, showed up at the at the at the at the vote for the Supreme Court justice and. Um, wasn't properly dressed and had to like vote from like the you know. I didn't you see that? Uh, yeah. It's hilarious. But, like he couldn't even. I mean, whatever he did it on. Yeah, purpose, but the point but. is, it, it can be a very easy job. Um, expecting politicians to do the right thing and defy human nature is stupid. Um, that I think took me a while because we run our whole system based on the opposite, which is you know we don't engage enough in the political inputs like primaries to determine who wins or what matters. But then when an issue comes up, we spend sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars on advocacy campaigns to like let the dreamers stay or ban assault weapons or all these things that to me are very logical and good. But all of them require a politician to say, you know what, I care more about you and your issue than me and my career. And you know how often that happens? Never, never, <laughs> never, never. Um, Didn't Harry Truman do this a few times? <laughs> may, maybe. Um, you know, or, or what Harry Truman did with the real genius is, my guess is he was exactly like every other politician, but his genius was making it seem like he was. Of course, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that's the trick, right? I mean, that's that's the Barack Obama. Um, yeah, same thing. Magic right. trick, right? Yeah, I mean, Obama. Look, I think he was a good president. Uh, I think the country's better off for having had him. But trust me, when he was a state senator in Illinois and I was deputy governor, he was a politician. And he did exactly what every politician did to get ahead and benefit themselves. Wait, what was the big thing he did, the vote that he missed when he was in the state senate where he was like on a vacation uh, in Hawaii? Was that, yeah, was I that rem- guns? What was I it? remember the story. It was before my time. I don't remember the actual vote. I gotta, I'm going to remember that for next week. But it was, a, it, was an, it was like one of those little kind of like, like Obama moments where you're like, oh, shit, he's like a normal he's politician. He's a politician. Yeah, yeah he – look – Good person, smart person, tremendous qualities, right? I admire him in many ways. But he's a politician. And that's the other thing. When we deify these people on the left or the right and say they're the ones who are different and they're transformational and they're going to change everything, they never are. Because one of two things happens. Either, A, they're like all other politicians, which is basically true all the time, or B, they can't overcome the system, right? So they, even if they go in there with good intentions, they get beat really fast, um, and then it's just a total mess from there. Now, it seems to me, I, I feel like I know what you're going to say to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, that Republicans are, or the right, let's say, not the party, but people on the right are a little more straightforward about like acknowledging this than people on the left. Because when I think of like who would object most like vociferously to like this philosophy, I think of like AOC. I feel like she's like, well, probably oh, anyone whose entire it. life is based on self-righteousness right. on the left or the right will hate all of this. Right. And yet, let's let's talk about AOC. So what's interesting is uh, we talked about this last week on the podcast. It was a historic vote uh, at Amazon Staten Island warehouse to right. unionize. Right. First time that it happened in the history of Amazon. And it turned out that the leader said of the union, uh, you know, the least helpful person was AOC. Like she had promised to help them, and then she totally abandoned them. And you know why? Because it wasn't. She determined that doing so was not good for her politics. Why did it turn out not to be good for her politics? You... Um, I, there's an excellent column in today's New York Post by Nicole Jelinas, who generally is really, really smart, and she wrote a great piece on this today, which is say progressives and traditional labor unions don't really line up, right? Labor unions are still about deal making, 
and kind of trying to figure out how to get their interests ahead of everyone else. And she made the point that Joe Crowley, which is the congressman that AOC beat to come into power, right. was supported by every labor union in, in their election, and it didn't make a difference. Um, so I think that the, there's not – everyone assumes that unions and progressives are sort of a natural alliance, and her point was that's not really true. What aspect of this, of your of your philosophy, do you think is most important uh, for – for Democrats, but also Republicans who oppose Donald Trump, to understand in terms of how to beat him in 2024, is there is there here here's the problem. So if you if you hadn't taken the question to Trump, my answer was vote in the primary and get people to vote in the primary. Right. That's the only input that matters. The one election in this country that does not have a turnout problem is president. So. Unlike the other stuff, look, it's still not like 90%, but it's in the 60s pretty consistently. So you do have pretty high primary and general election turnout in the, in the presidential campaigns. So as a result, just saying go out and vote, like that, that in and of itself is, is insufficient. Um, look, I think the way that you do it is you have to build a political infrastructure that is less based on appealing to people's you know, anger. Uh, like we, the system is set up for populism to do really well, whether it's AOC or Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump or whoever it is. And the reason why populism is thriving is because everything works on the margins. Only the people on the far left and the far right and special interests vote in every city council primary, every school board election, every state senate primary, all of that stuff. And as a result, they hold the power. And when they live in a world where compromise is unacceptable because purity is all that matters, um, you really pave the way for a demagogue like Trump or AOC or Sanders. And so um, I think ultimately, if you really want to stop this, and it may, it may not stop Trump in 24, um, it, you got to vote in those school board elections. You got to vote in those state senate primaries. You, you got to support things like mobile voting. If we can move politics to the center, then we can get things done. If we can have results on immigration, guns, healthcare, education, w whatever the issue is, climate, um, there's a lot less anger out there, and there's a lot less dissatisfaction out there. So there's less that for demagogues to tap into. But it all requires moving things to the middle. Um, you, you, um, actually, I'm sure you know this, but uh, in, in reading about the Liz Cheney race. Uh, Wyoming has an interesting sort of electoral law. You, there's same-day party registration, so you can literally turn up at the polls and say, yep, I'm a Republican or, yep, I'm a Democrat. Yep. Um, do you like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I like all of the political reforms out there. I like same-day party registration. I like open primaries. I like top two elections. I like ranked choice voting. I, I think all of it is good. However, having worked on pretty much all of those issues at one point or another in my career, mm -hmm. they're very incremental. Right. So. They might, at the very margins, move things slightly to the center, um, but they are still taking a broken system and trying to make it a little bit better. So it's not rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but it's still taking a, ship, a sinking ship and trying to just like keep it afloat a, a little longer. Whereas, to me, the only two things that can truly change the nature of our politics are either gerrymandering reform or mobile voting, because if you had truly competitive general elections in every district, then by definition, everyone would have to move to the center to try to capture the most votes. The problem is, um, even though you have had some encouraging examples lately of judges, I think we talked about this last week, throwing out different redistricting maps, both right. Republican and Democrat, the U.S. Supreme Court has said, hey, we're not going to ultimately revisit this issue at all. So getting broad-based reform on redistricting, I think, is really unlikely. So it leaves you with mobile voting. It's the only thing that everyone could you could radically change turnout because you're now taking the voting booth to everyone's pocket. 
That is the only thing. Letting more people vote in a primary or change their party same day, sure, it helps. But you know, they still have to plan to go show up and vote, which most people do not. Uh, so, so to me, that's why mobile voting is the only solution. Um, tell me where mobile voting, where the initiative is, is right now. What's the what's the yeah? Latest? I mean, I guess the, the the three big things I would say is one, um, we're in the middle of building our own mobile voting technology. I right. think we've we've finished the design phase. We're we're on to the development phase. Um, the integration between some of the different vendors that we have building it is starting to go pretty well. Uh-huh. Um, so I think we're making real progress there. I think we will produce something that is really secure, really good. And my hope is at least some people in the cyber community will be willing to say that publicly so that the narrative isn't constantly sort of fixing democracy versus security and so that everyone who wants the system to make, go the way it is because they have power in it can't use security as an excuse to stop it. So that's why we're building this technology. So when you have that technology, I, I run elections in Louisville, Kentucky. I can come to you and say, hey, I want, uh, yeah, I want to use your technology. It's free and open source to everyone, okay. although you're still going to need some sort of implementation vendor, right? right? Because we're not interested in now setting up and running your actual elections. That that's not that's not our expertise. But you know, we've been talking to the companies who do run elections and we're right. saying, look, we'll give this to you, right? right? Just take it. Like we're not even looking for we don't want money, we don't want anything else. We just want this to happen. So look that can And are come- they relatively I, I didn't even know there were companies that run there elections. Are. Uh, and their their answer to me is privately is pretty consistent. I won't say I'll respect their privacy by not saying who said what, but pretty consistently the same thing, which is Sure, mobile voting seems like it could be good, but all we care about are winning RFPs. That's all that matters. If the right. RFP is for mobile voting, we'll do mobile voting. Right. If the RFP is for you know electronic voting machines, we'll do that. They don't. All they care about is trying to maximize win procurement and maximize revenue. And so as a result, part of the reason why I think I wanted to build, or I know that I wanted to build this technology is they were never going to invest the $10 million in R&D on their end to do it because there was no demand for it from their clients, from the election officials around the country. So I think once we create this and get it out there, you know, there's two possibilities. One is the voting companies can go to the jurisdiction and say, hey, we have access to this now. Do you want us to try it? But more likely, it's going to be election officials saying, um, what, do, what can you do for me on this? This looks interesting. How do we implement this into maybe something small originally? And look, I could see a world where mobile voting initially just starts with primaries in state and local elections. Uh, right. I, I would be more than happy with that because that's the vast majority of where actual governance happens anyway. So that's right. number one. Number two is um, we're going to ultimately need to legalize this in every single jurisdiction, and we're going to have the opposition of the entire status quo, Republicans, Democrats, lobbyists, unions, trade groups, you name it. Um, but we have legislation pending in the District of Columbia City Council right now um, that would make it possible for anyone to vote on their phone in elections. Um, the bill needs seven votes to pass. At the moment, we have eight co-sponsors. So it's still going to be really tough. I still think it's 50-50 whether we pass the bill. Um, but, you know, we're, we're at least, I think, running a, a pretty decent and very aggressive campaign in D.C. Um, and the third part is is movement building, right? And so now we have a guy who who's kind of our digital guy from mobile voting, his entire job now is just to spend all day on TikTok promoting mobile voting. Because the reality is, I need your kids, I need my kids to say, there is no world in which we shouldn't be able to do this. And when they get all the various excuses from all the politicians and all the interest groups who like things the way they are, they reject them all completely and demand it. Are there political influencers on on TikTok the way there are like fashion influencers and yeah there's, there seem to be like you know we had a video not at the same Charlie D'Amelio or whatever the level is but like yeah we've had videos now that are getting like 20,000 views 50,000 views videos that you make 
videos either usually that we're working with influencers to make. So we're, we're recruiting people who support the concept, working with them, giving them basically the content to make a video, and then putting it out there. Um, because the reality is, I'm 48 years old, right? Like if I go on TikTok and talk about like how great mobile voting is, no one on there cares, right? But if one of their peers is doing it, it it's a lot better. It's interesting. My wife works in e-commerce, and and basically influencers just drive everything that they do. And it's 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 funny because like I, I I don't influencers I, as far as I can tell have no influence on me in anything. Like I don't like I don't. I was trying to think of like how it applies to my sort of well, consumer choices. Here's, here's where it might, and maybe this is less consumer. But you listen to podcasts, you read articles. Um, those people in some ways are influencers and no, no, arguably I, I, they're, they're affecting it, it to the extent that this podcast at all changes anyone's thinking about everything about anything we're influencers right but i just mean like it, you know if you if you look at if you look at tiktok or instagram you see very direct you know like basically you know the way the way college athletes are now they're like hey i you know i drink this energy drink or yeah. I, you know, shop at this store yeah, or I, I buy these I, sneakers. And it's yeah. a very direct, like... Yeah. like. So look, the, what that says about you is something very good. Now look, you're also older yeah, enough old. to, to be mature. But, <laughs> That's like, what it says. It's very good but to the be point old. is all American commerce, as I understand it, is based on making consumers feel like that their life is incomplete and would be a lot better if they only owned this car, this fabric softener, whatever it is. Right. right? And you make them feel bad about themselves and then you have someone who they aspire to be Whose like life saying, is perfect, right? Yeah. If you just were only to buy this kind of Ford F one fifty, everything will be good. Right. Um, and so given that, yeah, the reason why obviously it works is that there's a lot of people who are, you know, looking to someone they admire for advice on pretty much anything and, and clearly that works because your wife wouldn't be spending this much time and money pursuing influencers if, if it didn't. Um, when you have private conversations with elected officials, um, and you talk to them about mobile voting, so yep. they're not they're not doing it for public consumption. What do they tell you? Everyone agrees. Now, here's the thing: everyone but does agrees everyone for, agree for two... because they're like, "Oh, Bradley, I just don't want to get in an argument about no, it." Or no, like... no, it's more because I want him to keep in mind. Most of there are some elected officials that I'm genuinely friendly with and talk to on a regular basis, but it's not that many, right? right. Um, and then there are elected officials who. See, seeing me all the time and they may frame it in, oh I want to learn more about mobile voting or hunger or whatever it is we're doing they just want money right. right and so when you're asking someone for money you typically tend to agree with whatever they say so I don't have a problem in private getting politicians to agree with me on mobile voting um, whether they would ever have the balls to stand up and say that publicly is a different story um, and whether they actually agree with me or they're just parroting what I want to hear because they want some checks uh, you know I think it's probably more likely the latter what about your sort of circle of, of uh, political consultant friends, like your chat group? Um, are you, I mean, do they, do they look at this sometimes? They, they think it's a, a fool's little bit? I, th I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth because they're, they're nicer to say this than that. Right. But the, and these are all really, really smart people, but people are very of the system and also very partisan Democrats. Right. They, they work in Democratic politics. They care about Democrats. They really believe that Republicans are evil and whatever else. Um, no, they, they think this is a folly for me and a, fool, a fool's errand and that the system will never allow something like this to happen. Um, these are also, though, the other people in the tech chain, none of them work in technology or ever have in any way, shape, or form. Right. So they're all extremely intelligent, but none of them have the ability to sort of look around the corner and say, this is an emerging trend 
that could actually change things. But obviously, that does happen, right? Because our life is changed and defined by new technologies all the time. Um, so I think they wish me well, but I don't think any of them take it particularly seriously. Okay, so this list, we're going to get this published on the Firewall website, maybe somewhere else, but um, I think we obviously would love some feedback on it. Sure. You would? Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And, and, um, also, and what, you know, to extend some private feedback, what do we do with it, right? So right. I have this list now of these 10 things. I have some forums to talk about it, but if, if you agree that this perspective would make our politics a lot better if people were just more cognizant of how things really work, you know, how do we get it out? What would be helpful ways to put it out into the ecosystem? Um, so we'll be returning to this in future conversations, probably even next week. Um, now we have another little. Um, this is this is more of a kind of a gimmick, I think. Yeah, the, the, I just, here's the thing. Here's what this is. Go, okay. I constantly. This is really the Bradley com- podcast com- of all time, right think here. Think of ideas for new businesses, and ninety nine point seven percent of the time they are not worth. Wait, ninety nine point seven percent. They're they're not worth pursuing because yeah, while it might be somewhat clever, or maybe there would be something in the market for it. You know, we invest in high-growth technology companies that we think can be worth billions of dollars in a period of five to seven years, right? None of these things are in any way— You also invest in bookstores and literary prizes. Yeah, but that's just a knowing loss. Uh, By the way, we're we're voting on the winner today for the Gotham Book Prize. And when will that be announced? Next couple of weeks. I'm not totally sure yet. Um, In a perfect world, I'd love to coordinate it with the opening of the bookstore, but I think— Today's April 11th. We're looking at a Memorial Day weekend opening. I don't think it's fair to hold it for seven weeks. So we'll, we'll probably just put it on. So tell me how too. the voting process. I mean, so you're voting today on the yep, Gotham so we have Prize. A, we have a jury. Okay, how many people are on your jury? Ten on the jury, Ten plus the jury. Howard and me. And and then do they? does everyone have their choices? They clear or they tell you them today in the call? No. So everyone nominates okay. if they want to. And I think pretty much everyone did. So there's Wouldn't ten, be much of a judge if they didn't right, nominate. There's, yeah. So there's ten books in contention. And then Basil created a little thing where you just, with your cursor, or your mouse, whatever you're doing, your finger, you just slide them in order of how you want to rank the 10 books. And then it, it, you hit submit, and then it calculates it and says, you know, here's the, the vote. So title. that's going to happen that you, this that's, afternoon. That's going to happen in live. I got to be, I want to. Oh. will happen at 1 p.m. today. You're I, welcome I'm on to the join call. me. No, I'm it. on the call. Yeah. I, I, I Very dramatic. I calls because I don't have a vote or anything, but but I um, I would like to see that. And actually, I'm getting Basil to hook me up so I can see yeah. the Yeah, and then uh, we'll see who wins. Look, I, and I will say this I, I know who I'm going to vote for. I'm not going to say it out loud here. Of course. Interact, but um, I, we really don't put our thumb on the scale. Uh, I, I don't. I don't make a passionate case for the book that I want to support. It's really funny though, because I'm thinking about um, the way you've. I mean, obviously, this is a literary prize, not like a company you're running. Um, but uh, you were you were you were bashing the New York Times publisher for not you know just doing things. He's paying for stuff, so why shouldn't the paper publish? That's a for-profit business. I know. I understand it's different, yeah. but I just think like I could see you being like, sure, if a book I don't like is going to win, I'm going to stop well, that. Well, to be clear, so so if an author I don't like or a book I don't like. Wins. It's coming. Forget about wins. It's okay. coming out, and I don't like them. Or let's say, you know, given my my bias against the New York Times, right? right. We are never going to give a forum to any New York Times reporter at our bookstore. They are not be allowed to use the podcast studio. They're not be welcome to have readings or events. A reporter? Yep. We might not even sell their books at all. But but, but you will be punished against, for You're not against there. all reporters. I'm only against the New York Times. Okay. As soon as they leave to work for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, they're good. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm going to punish them purely out of spite and vindictiveness. Um, but that's still, even though I'm going to probably lose money on it, a for-profit business, right? right? And it is mine to do whatever I want. With. Right. The Gotham Book Prize is is nonprofit, and it is designed simply to say this is the best book, and it is far more legitimate if these ten experts who are 
you know, really acclaimed novelists, poets, historians, whatever they are, are giving their opinion. The reality is you could argue that Howard and I shouldn't even have a vote, right? right? Because right. what do we know, right? Uh, now, look, I think because of all the work we did in New York City government for so long, we probably do know a little bit. What do you mean? You guys are incredible readers and, like, I mean— I would think you would. Yeah, know but we're not any- of the literary world, of the publishing world. Well, as you know, like what, what's that expertise really worth? I'm just <laughs> saying it's. And I, yeah, I guess I have written a book, but still, po- point is for the Gotham Book Prize to me. Also, I, I don't care enough to sort of rig the outcome. Right. I right? understand. I understand. Um, let's let's go. We're, can we'll, we do my we'll be talking about this ideas? next week. You can. I, I'm going to get signed up for the for the for the for the. I want to see the technology in action. But we'll talk about that next week. Obviously, we won't be announcing the winner yet. But you want it. You have these business ideas occasionally yeah. that you're never going to actually do, but that they, they kind of like yeah, keep popping or, in your or, head. Or if I'll do them, it's almost just for like as a, a fun project, okay. not as a real thing. So, so do you want me to comment on them, or do you yeah, want to? Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll throw them out to you. I'm as gonna give you. I'm going to give you, you my give choice. Me your feedback. Okay. All right. Number one is the QR code tattoo. So you would develop a proprietary method of tattooing a QR code onto someone's skin that can be actually scanned. And what that means is it's a living, breathing, evolving tattoo because you could change what it links to 10 times a day if you wanted to, right? So as you you might think that like uh, a tattoo of a white claw when you're 18 looks really cool and be humi- you know horrified by it by 21, um, but you might have some other cause you're passionate about. So what it does is it lets you constantly change what people are scanning and seeing based on how you feel at that moment, based on your views, based on your personality. You could use it to promote products, and maybe maybe it's an even form of, of advertising where influencers get paid to have these QR code. Uh, tattoos, or maybe it is a form of promoting causes and issues. Um, you know, maybe there's sort of a, you know, people who want to stand with the Ukrainians could have some sort of QR tattoo that would then take you to a link to donate money to support them or something like that. But the idea would be effectively, if tattoos are now a commonplace part of our society and QR codes are now a commonplace part of our society, and the one thing we know about tattoos is people who get them often Years later, regret the tattoo. Maybe not getting a tattoo, but the specific tattoo that right. they got. The dragon that goes yeah, up whatever the neck, it is right. that seemed cool at the moment. When, by the way, what percent of people get tattoos are drunk? Like, got to be at least twenty-five percent, right? Um, so you put that all together. This eliminates the problem because it's just whatever you want it to be at any given moment. Okay, um, would you get one of those? Hell no. Um, it strikes me as, as borderline creepy, and I would worry about people seizing control of other people's QR codes. And you know, it, it would it has a it has a slight like Big Brother case. Cast yeah, to me. but unless I, I understand, I understand the protections yeah. against that, and I, 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 and it also like isn't the whole idea of of, of tattoos to look cool? Like like having a QR code would be like the opposite. People of People cool. are like tattooing office supplies on their arms. Like I saw a stapler. Yeah, but those people are seriously not cool. I but, mean, don't you like the dragons and the and the you know? You know, the, look when it was like Marines and bikers, yeah, you know yeah. that made sense. But now that it's every single person under the age of forty, no, because you know what? Some number of people under the age of forty are legitimately cool, and most are not. Right? That's how it works. So I, I don't think that's enough of a disqualifier. I'm I'm impressed. I, I think it's a kind of ingenious idea, but I'm I'm, I'm not going to invest. But like, I also have no idea if it's possible. To create, it seems like it should be. Seems like it should be, but I, I don't know for sure. So you got to do some more research on that. I'm Bradley. probably not going to bother <laughs> to do that. Um, okay, number two. The next one is Airbnb for ideology. So this is actually a little more political, but I was thinking about this, which is 
you know, as we talk about this podcast endlessly, you know, we have this tremendous polarization uh, of our politics and everything is moving in either far left or far right with very little happening in between. And we're seeing that more than anywhere else at the state government, right? So you take a state like Texas that has effectively banned abortions, that allows guns to be carried openly basically absolutely everywhere and anywhere, um, you know, really wants to limit things like voting rights. Or take a place like New York or California, New York, where the city council is protesting because Eric Adams is trying to, like, remove homeless encampments, which are fucking filthy. Um, they're dangerous to, to, to regular citizens. They're dangerous for the people who are in them. And yet somehow the left has decided that this is a affront to their progressive values. So given that we've moved in these incredible extremes on both sides, right. let's say that you live in Texas. And I, I see this a lot because, you know, Harper's from Texas. Right. And people say... I don't necessarily want to live in a state that that behaves this way, right? right. Uh, um, and let's say you're somewhere in New York, you're like this has moved way far to the left, and criminals are being let out of jail for absolutely no reason at all, and I don't want to be part of this anymore. Home switching, so you can basically put your home up and say, okay, I will switch my home in a blue state to a home in a red state, and vice versa. And for a year, we can switch homes and each try out and see, do we prefer this new jurisdiction better? Does it make us feel more comfortable? Uh, and more accepted. And if so, there could then be a transaction to sell the house. Or if nothing else, you now know, okay, I should look for a house in Houston, in Boston, whatever whatever your ideology is. Um, but it's a way to basically say, okay, for as long as we're going to remain one country with wildly different political views that are really now put into practice by state law, um, maybe we should give people the way to, a way to kind of mix and match and, and get out of it. Um feels a little overly complicated to me, but I love the thinking. Um, it also reminds me of that those funny stories that come up from time to time when like you know, athletes get traded for each other and they move into each other's house in the new... Um, so, and, uh, wasn't there in the Yankees in the 70s? They traded wives, yeah. What, families, right? Whole, oh, did they trade whole families? Well, families. if you trade wives, maybe you have yeah, to Yeah, but I think it was family. like two... The kids go with the They wife. weren't like all-stars, right? But it was like two guys in the Yankees in the 70s. They yeah. literally traded families. And I thought Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were going to make a movie about this, but I guess they didn't. Um, but the, they must hate the Yankees. Oh, I guess that's why they'd want to do it, to make them look bad. <laughs> Um, I think they were just like, I think they were just thinking about making money, Bradley, um, as movie stars. They just have to do more crypto ads. Um, yeah, they're doing plenty of those. Um, all right, should we let's 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 stick to those two those right two? now? No, okay. two, because we we have more, but we'll we'll do them at the end of the next week. Okay. I I, I you know it's funny. I was I I I like the. I think he did a good job pitching him. And um, if I had to pick one, yeah. I think I would. I like the thinking behind Airbnb for ideology more. It seems a little complicated to me, and I can't really figure out yeah. how that would really work in the real world. Whereas the QR code thing, I could see completely working in the real world, so I'm going to go for that the, one. The funny thing with Airbnb for ideology is it, it's not a real business in any way, shape, or form, but you could build it and get attention for it pretty cheaply and easily. Right? right? Building, the, building a marketplace is not that hard or expensive, and you know who will go for this? All the same political press that is desperate to just find stuff to talk about all day. It would get a lot of attention. Do I think a lot of people would do it? No. I don't think it's a real business at all. The QR tattoo, I, I mean, it's sort of clever. Right. Um, it is not enough of a – look, I look for businesses that can have tech multiples, right? So I want them to be you know, 10 to 20 times – uh, earnings is, right. is their valuation. I don't think a QR code tattoo built company is going to get that. Um, but yeah, if anyone listening to this wants to steal my QR code tattoo idea, oh, you're throwing pl- it out there? Yeah, go for it. I'm not going to do anything with it. So it is yours to take if you like it. Till next week, Bradley. All right, man. Thanks. Bye-bye.